Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer and I've got some announcements. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your watch care, for the way you guide over all things. We ask that you will join us today as we study, draw hearts together in unity, and may we be effective at this time in history to take your kingdom to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Now I have some good news and some sad news. Good news is I'm going to be teaching in person more often. Sad news is I'm no longer associated with Liberty University as of yesterday morning. And the reason for that is they brought me on to, as you know, um, in my contract and what I've told you, to help build out a, a Christian residency program. And that their vision and my vision share. However, in order to build a residency program, you require certain infrastructure particularly an inpatient psychiatric unit. You cannot build a psychiatric residency without an inpatient psychiatric requirement. They don't have one, and they anticipated being able to get a certificate of need to build one or make a relationship with the local hospital. Um, Factors outside of the university's control has basically made that a non-starter at this point, and it will be an unforeseen time frame down the road before they can ever pursue that again at this point. And so we came to a mutual understanding that my position isn't really a position that I could fulfill what they brought me for. So um, we, very friendly, decided it was best for me not to stay there at that position at this point in time. So I'm going to be back uh, teaching class on a more regular basis. This gives opportunity for um, Christy and I prayerfully. Uh, this, I just found this out. We just decided this yesterday morning. And so, right now, I haven't made a decision regarding what's the next professional step in my career. So, we're open. Is this the time for me to become more involved in producing materials for Come and Reason Ministry, events, um, uh, broadcast materials? Is it uh, time to look for another clinical um, position or, or opportunity somewhere? We're just taking a pause putting it before the Lord and saying, uh, see if any doors open up from the Lord before we take an immediate action. So keep us in your prayers. We're considering all this. And we can see that the Lord was very blessing to us and that our, we've had our house for sale and, and it hasn't sold. And see how the Lord knew that there was things. And, see, he always got, he's always got your back. Always got your back. Okay. So we are doing lesson number six in the quarterly today entitled The Hour of His Judgment, and the last paragraph in the Sabbath lesson reads as follows, and listen carefully to this, and I want you, if you're a lifelong Adventist, to think, does this represent what you understand to be true, the truth? Here's what it says from the quarterly. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on Christ at Calvary, and all who are in Christ are safe forever beneath his wings. At the cross, Christ was judged as a condemned sinner so that we could be judged as righteous citizens of the heavenly kingdom. He was judged as a criminal so that we could be set free from the destructive fires of eternal loss, both figuratively and, yes, literally as well. Is this paragraph exactly true as it reads? No. Given the fact that we are all finite beings and that we grow for all eternity in our knowledge of God and our insights into the atonement will deepen throughout all eternity, we should ask, does this paragraph lead us to greater light, greater insight, greater truth, or does it darken the mind and make it harder to see the truth? It make us afraid of God. 
does this paragraph think, present things more closely to the way God would have us understand them or more closely to the way Satan would have us understand these themes? Well, let's examine what is being taught in light of God's word and see whether we can come to a conclusion on whether this is really a sound, inspired insight or maybe it's obstructing the light. The first sentence states, the fire of God's judgment burned themselves out on Christ at Calvary. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, maybe they're just being metaphorical. Maybe they're just using flowery speech or symbolism. Except the closing sentence of the same paragraph says, this is both figurative and literal. So they're declaring it to be a literal thing. And they say that Christ took our place and was judged and condemned as our substitute as a sinner would be. So they're making this, it sounds to me, more than metaphorical or symbolic. It sounds like it's some literal element here. Am I misreading it? So functionally, the lesson saying that the cross, God used his power to rain judgment fire down on Jesus, to punish Jesus for our sins. And if we don't claim the legal payment made by Jesus, then God in the end will use his divine power to rain judgment fire down on us. Do you think that way of saying it is a misreading of it? It contradicts what Christ said. But the way I just interpreted it, do you think that I've misinterpreted what the paragraph says? I, I don't want to put, project in and say, that, but, but is that a reasonable way to understand what they've said? So I want you to see this then clearly. This paragraph denies scripture. The testimony that Jesus himself gave it denies. And it denies the truth about how God's laws actually function. We have recorded in Scripture the inspired account of what actually happened to Jesus at the cross. What his father actually did to him is recorded more than once. And it was recorded more than once with Jesus' own words testifying of what he was experiencing so that we would not draw the conclusion that the lesson is trying to get us to draw. At the cross, what did God do with his power? Did he release it to inflict something, or did he restrain it and stop using it and let someone go? According to the inspired record, God stopped using divine power and allowed the separation that comes when the source of life lets go to be experienced by Christ. What caused Jesus the most torment The physical attacks or the emotional, psychological dissolution breakup with his father? What was causing him the most torment? And when did that torment, that that agony that brought death begin? At the cross or in Gethsemane? So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 to 38, we read, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he said, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. And then you can read the same account uh, similar to that in Mark. And then in Luke, Luke writes the following in 22 verses 39 to 44. Jesus went out as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, 
if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now I'm going to read to you a commentary, a Bible commentary. You can find this Bible commentary in the book, The Desire of Ages, written by one of the founders of the SDA Church, and we're going to compare what the commentary in The Desire of Ages, one of the founders of the SDA Church wrote, compared to what we found in our quarterly. Because the quarterly suggests that it represents the Adventist way of seeing things. And I'm going to suggest to you there's a disconnect between what the founders of the SDA Church taught and saw and what's actually being taught in our church today. And we're going to ask why. What has caused that disconnect? But let's look what it says in the Desire of Ages. This is starting on page 690. And, and this is commentary on what we just read from Scripture about Gethsemane, him falling down, dying, an angel coming to strengthen him. It says, The humanity of the Son of God trembled in the trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. The awful moment had come, that, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. Paul's right there. Wasn't the moment to decide the destiny of Calvary? This author says it was in Gethsemane. When was the decision actually made to not go back to heaven? To actually accept the cup that is poured out without mixture and drink it to the bottom dregs? When did, when did that choice get made? Gethsemane. And Gethsemane. And everything else that happened was the fruit or the outworking of the commitment and the choice in Gethsemane. So, so the decision, the destiny is, is hanging in the balance here in Gethsemane. And then we see some additional evidences that need to be worked out in the next few hours after that. But here is the critical decision. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin. And I will go back to my father. Will the son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will he Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall trembling from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times he has uttered this, that prayer. Three times his humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before him, the world's rede- before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. Pause. Why must they perish if left to themselves? Is, is, is this saying he sees that, it, that if he doesn't do something to his father, that, that his father's anger control problems will lash out in wrath and destroy them? Is he saying that these, these individuals possess eternal life in and of themselves? And, and, and no. Why must they perish? As an inflicted punishment, God's justice require he use power to execute them. Or is humanity suffering from a terminal condition, sometimes described in Scripture this way, dead in trespass and sin? A terminal condition that without what Jesus is about to accomplish, there's no cure, there's no remedy. The condition cannot be removed. We cannot be restored to the source of har- harmony with the source of life. We, uh, the only outcome, the inevitable outcome of what sin does, severing us from, from the source of life, our connection with God, and, the, and, and they must perish if he doesn't finish and reconcile us. 
He sees the helplessness of men. He sees the power of sin. We are helpless over what? What is being contrasted by this author? Jesus sees the helplessness of man and the power of God to punish sin? Is that what she says? Man is helpless to do anything over God's power to punish sin. That's how it's often presented. It's not the problem. It's the power of sin, the power of fear and selfishness that's infecting our being. After Adam sinned, only Jesus could, as a human, using human abilities, confront and overcome the power of fear and selfishness in the heart and mind and eradicate it, destroy it, and restore the law of life back into the species human. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds the impending fate. His decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. And he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Having made the decision, he fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. Pause right there. The Bible describes this. He was collapsing, sweating drops of blood. The rest of the crucifixion hadn't even happened yet. He hadn't been beaten, he hadn't been nailed to a tree. Do we see an account in any inspired record that fire was coming down from God to burn him up? Was God inflicting, using power to to crush the life of his son here? What is causing the agony here, the suffering, the torment? It is a breaking up of the unity with his father that is a result of taking the sinner's position. Severing that connecting link Where now were his disciples to place their hands tenderly beneath the head of the fainting master and bathe that brow marred indeed with more than the sons of men? The Savior trod the winepress alone, and of the people there were none with him. Next sentence. God suffered, but God suffered with his son. Parents, would you suffer to watch one of your children dying all alone in agony and you could not intervene to help them? Would that cause you to suffer? Don't doubt, don't think for a minute that the Father was not suffering right along with Jesus. They were in this together. This is a joint rescue operation of the Godhead. And they each had their role to play. The Father must separate from the humanity of his Son because God is the source of life. And if the source of life doesn't let go, Christ cannot complete the mission and die. He will stay alive. And so God had to let go for the mission to be accomplished. This is not, I'm mad, I can't look, you've offended me, the sins have been placed on there, they're so nauseating, they give me a bad smell, Uh, you know, I've got to put up a a screen and a shield between us. This is none of that. This is time for us, the Godhead, to complete the mission. Christ is about to eradicate and destroy the sin infection and restore the very elements of God's love kingdom, the, the principles of life, back into the humanity that he had been living out as our divine substitute. 
Angels beheld the Savior's agony. They saw their Lord, Lord enclosed by legions of satanic forces. His nature weighed down with shut, a shuddering, mysterious dread. Whose forces were pressing in to cause him distress? Was it God that was doing this? No. Satanic forces are the source of the stress. There was silence in heaven. No harp was touched. Could mortals have viewed the, the amazement of the angelic host as it, in silent grief, watched the Father separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his Son, they would better understand how offensive in his sights is sin. Again, why is the Father separating? Is Father using power to rain fire down? We read in our quarterly, God, he, the, the literal and figurative fire was rained on Christ. He took it there at the cross, exhausted it all. Is that what this author is describing? Or his light is being withdrawn. What about later at the cross? This is describing this commentary in Gethsemane. At the cross, are you aware of any inspired record that said at the cross God rained fire down on Jesus? Like Mount Carmel, fire came down and consumed it all and burned it up. Do you find that in scripture anywhere? Understand what the lesson is trying to get you to think. It's trying to get you to think God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering and it's called justice to punish sinners for sin. It is pagan. It's not Christian. The Father actually says at the cross, the Bible actually says, Jesus' words, my God, my God, why are you raining fire down from heaven and torturing me? <laughs> That's not his words, his own words. Why have you forsaken, given me up, abandoned me, let me go? And if you want a, another inspired um, reference, evidence, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says in uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men, starting verse 18. And he tells you what it is in verse 24, 26, and 28. He says, therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. And it's certain, certain Greek is used to describe that. Same Greek, three places. And then if you keep reading over in chapter, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, same exact Greek as you find in those three verses, Paul says, God gave Jesus up. But almost every English translation translates it as delivered over instead of giving up. But it's the same. God's wrath gave Jesus up to reap what Jesus chose. What did Jesus choose? In Gethsemane, he chose to drink the cup, to be our savior, to eliminate the sin problem, to confront the infection, to eradicate fear and selfishness, to restore righteousness in humanity. He chose to be our savior, to fix the problem. And God gave him up to go through what was necessary to achieve it. The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest the conflict, as the conflict drew to its close. And what do you think they saw? What do they see? What, as far as the inspired record, what is God actively doing in Gethsemane at the cross to his son? Is he actively using power or is he ceasing the use of power? Ceasing. Letting go. Who, who is using power here to cause harm? <laughs> Satan and evil men. Notice, Satan and evil men inflict power on him to hurt him. Satan and his confederacy of evil legions of apostasy watched intently the great crisis and the work of redemption. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come from Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the suffer, divine sufferer, but this might not be. No way of escape was found for the Son of God. Pause. Why? Why was there no way of escape? Because of reality. 
because of God's law, because of the actual condition of humanity and the actual way God has constructed life to work, the only avenue forward was to eradicate the death-causing principle that has taken hold of humanity after Adam's sin and restore the species back to perfect harmony with God by living the the law of life out as a human being. This is what Christ is accomplishing. This is the only way. In the awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened, a light shone forth amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of the Father's love. He came to give power to the divine supplicant. Suppliant. This did not reduce the suffering of Christ. It prolonged it. Understand, this action from God, his human physiology, weakened, was dying, decaying, giving up, about to collapse. But yet, there was more to accomplish this weekend that needed to be revealed and achieved by Jesus And he needed strength to go through, physical strength to go through. And so the angel gave physical strength, but did not diminish the suffering that he was going through when he went through that. And notice, according to this author, when they gave the physical strength, also gave him the assurance of God's love. God is not angry with his son. God is not saying, oh, you're in the position of a sinner and I'm angry and wrathful at sinners and so all my anger and wrath is now at you because you are now taking all my hostility that I have towards sinners. It's not happening. For God so hated the world that Jesus died to pay his blood to get him to love us again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us some, but gave him up. How will he not along with him give us all things? Romans 8, 31. God is always for us. And so God's actions here are part of the divine plan for our salvation. God loved Jesus. Even when Jesus takes the cup of our iniquity, so to speak, and becomes our substitutionary savior and stands in the sinner's place, God still loves Jesus. He's not mad at him. The angel pointed to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as the result of his suffering. He assured him that his father is greater, more powerful than Satan, that his death would result in the utter discomfiture of Satan, And that the kingdoms of the world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He told him that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for he would see multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. Notice the angel focuses his mind away from the injustices, away from the abuse, away from the pain, the torment, the suffering, and away from self and on to God, on to others, on to the higher purpose, what he's accomplishing. This is a lesson for us, folks. That's right. That's right. When we are being assailed by evil forces, and we will be, We're being misrepresented. Blessed are you when they say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Now notice this last paragraph of our quote. Christ's agony did not cease, but his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had no wise wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. He had borne that which no human could ever bear, for he had tasted the sufferings of death for every man. When did Jesus taste the sufferings of death, according to this commentary? This is before the cross. This is when the cup of God's wrath is being poured out upon him and he's being abandoned and let go by his father. Do we see fire raining down from heaven? So why has the lesson come to a different conclusion and description of events than the most important founder of the SDA church? Why? Because the lesson is written by people who hold a different view of God's law than the author of the Desire of Ages. That's why. They hold an imposed law view. They hold the idea, and if you're not familiar with our class, the big divide, it will come down to the question, do you see God as creator, builder of space, time, energy, matter, and life, and therefore his laws are the actual protocols that sustain all reality, physical reality, spiritual reality, relational reality. Health and life requires harmony with these laws. Or do you see God functioning no different than a Roman Caesar? He is powerful and he makes up rules and then he enforces rules with external inflictions of punishments. That's how we do things. So we call them laws. The author of the Desire of Ages saw God's law as design law, what we call design law. The lesson authors see God's law functioning like human law, judicial magistrate, legal consequences, uh, heavenly records, judicial oversight, inflicted punishments for justice. And truthfully, if God's law functions no different than human law, then justice requires appropriate punishments. That's how human law justice works. And that's why people hold that are so insistent. God must use his power to punish. They must, they must, because they have a wrong idea how his law functions. From the same author as the Desire of Ages, I'm going to read you a couple more quotes. First one is out of a book you might have heard of called The Great Controversy. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. This is out of Prophets and Kings, page 625. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be, holy, just, and good. Complete in itself, it cannot be repealed or changed. To honor or dishonor it is but the speech of men. What kind of law is that kind of describing here? I, I don't have this quote, but you remember a quote from the same author? She says, in heaven, the servants of, of the, uh, the obedience of angels does not come as something um, uh, as a drudgery. It's, uh, the, the idea that there was a law to the angels came that something completely unthought of. You remember that quote? Yes. Mm-hmm. How in the world can you have a law that people are expected to live in harmony with, but they've never thought of it? We put a law out that you don't walk on the grass over in Collegedale. And we start executing people who do. Because it's a death penalty, minimum penalty, death. Transgression law. 
sin. Sin is death, right? Minimum penalty. We'll execute you. But we never tell anybody about the law. You think, is that fair? Do you think that'd be fair and just? But that'd be horrible. So, so if there's a law that people expect to operate in harmony with, but they don't know about it, well, then you've heard this example. Isaac Newton one day discovers the law of gravity. He comes and t- tells his friends, hey, I just discovered the law of gravity. Here's the equation. Can you imagine his friends going, huh, there's a law about gravity? Huh, that's just the way things always worked. I didn't realize there was a law of that. That's the kind of law in God's kingdom. It's design law. It's how reality actually functions and works. And then the next quote, Prophets of Kings 6.25. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the great last conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle we are now entering. A battle not between rival churches. The Adventist church has never actually positioned itself in rival with another church organization, has it? Not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. Under fable, fable, fable is, 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 it means what? What's a fable? Is it reality? No. It's mythical. Okay, understand this idea that God creates laws, oversees them as a heavenly magistrate, uses power to inflict punishment, and needs a payment of his own son's blood so that he won't do that to you? That's fable. That's myth. That's pagan tradition. That is not biblical. This has always been growing up that it's the Sunday law. Right, and so the emphasis has been the Sunday law. We'll come to that just in fact. In it, let's go back to that first quote. Go back to the first one. The last great conflict between truth and error is the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. The last great struggle. The long-standing controversy, okay? Where where did the struggle begin? It's the last struggle. It's not the beginning. The beginning, it it began in in heaven. And and when Lucifer rebelled in heaven, it was over a question of God's law. Do you think it was a question of the Sabbath? No. (laughs) Did the Sabbath exist when Lucifer rebelled? No. No. Not according to scripture, it didn't. (laughs) Lucifer rebelled, and then God created this planet, and at the end of the creation of this planet, he creates the Sabbath, and Jesus himself said the Sabbath was made for man. It has a creation point. The sin problem began before the Sabbath. It cannot end over a Sabbath question. That doesn't mean, though, that the Sabbath is not involved. Because the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift and a gift to do what? What was the Sabbath a gift for? Rest. Worship. Rest for who? Contemplate God. Who rested creation week? God and man. Yeah, but, but, but God primarily is the one that, that... So he says the Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign to you that... What's it a sign of? According to Ezekiel, according to Numbers. Freedom. That I am the one who makes you holy. I'm the one who sanctifies you. The Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign of how he uses power. It's a sign of how he governs. It's a sign of how his laws work. It's a sign that he is creator. It's a sign of of how he achieves outcomes. How does he achieve outcome? By might and power? Not by might, nor by power, by the way spirit works. And so 
day one through six of creation week, what do we see? We see a powerful God who can speak things into existence, who has the power of creation. What do we see on day seven? Stand back. The cessation of the use of power. Now, which day one through six is a sign that I've got power to save you. The Sabbath is a sign that I am the one who makes you holy. Day one through six, I'm the powerful God. You should follow me. Day seven I am, is a sign that I'm the God you should trust. Where, where is he calling our attention? To the power of day one through six or to the rest on day seven? And what's he doing there with power? He's not using it. Understand, this creation week happened in a universe already in a civil war. Lucifer's already rebelled. Third of the angels following him. God is saying, even in war, I don't win by might and power. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the spirit works. So how do we win? Truth. All week long, God's revealing truth, answering questions. During creation week, he's revealing. Evidence. Create new beings in the image of God, given dominion to govern a new domain with godlike powers of procreative abilities. They can come into union and create beings in their own image. We have a microcosm now of the universe. Adam and Eve representing the Godhead, made in the image of God, coming to unity of love, make beings in their own image, given dominion to govern the earth on godly principles. God shares power. He doesn't hold power. He doesn't hoard power. And then he says, I rest my case. Take 24 hours aside. Think. Come to your own conclusion. No coercion. No pressure. He had power to force Lucifer and every intelligent being to bow. He still has that power. But the Sabbath shows he doesn't govern that way. He governs truth, love, and he leaves us free. Why does he leave us free? Because what he wants, he wants your love, he wants your trust, he wants your loyalty, he wants your devotion. He can never get those things from you by threatening to kill you if you don't love and trust him. Yes or no? So the Sabbath is a sign to you. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember how I govern. I am not this imperial dictator who rains fire down on an innocent to punish him for someone else's sins. That's what most of Christianity teaches. God is the kind of God that whose justice works like this. People are guilty of crimes. They deserve punishment. But we'll accept innocent people and punish them in their place and then claim that that, that, that innocent person's goodness gets attached to the record of this sinful person and they get a pass. We call that justice. Does that sound just to anybody? If you understand design law, then you understand that when Adam sinned, God did not get changed. God's law did not get changed. The condition of the human species changed from love and loyalty to fear and selfishness. They have a terminal sin condition. And Christ came as the second Adam to destroy the infection that causes death and restore God's design in the species human, exercising human abilities, acting as a real human being, making choices with the human brain to say no to every temptation and to say yes to every principle of God. And at the cross, he destroys the carnal nature, rises with the new humanity that he perfected at the cross. Thus, he becomes the second head of humanity, the second Adam, and all who unite with him through faith are grafted in, and the Spirit takes the victory of Christ and renews it in us, and we get new hearts and right spirits. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's transformational, regenerational healing. That's the reality. And it's all because of what Christ achieved. And the final question is, how do you view God's law? Because if you view God's law functioning like human law, 
you will create a God that looks like Caesar, who requires legal payments, and who is the source of inflicted death for the purpose of maintaining justice in a coercive universe. If you worship a God who's like Jesus, then you recognize that sin deviates from the laws that life is built upon, and we're dying of a terminal condition, and rather than let us die, God sacrificed himself and his son to provide us the remedy, and every resource of heaven is provided to apply that remedy for all who will trust him. It's a completely divergent system of understanding reality. One will lead you to faith, love, trust, and Christ-likeness. One will lead you to fear and pharisaical religiosity. Sunday's lesson says, as we have already seen, there must be a judgment before Christ comes. The angel announces in a loud voice, the hour of his judgment has come. The book of Daniel gives us the time when this judgment begins. So what's the first question when we read stuff like this? I always inspire you to to ask or suggest you ask. What law lens are you reading it through? Do you read that through God's law works like human law? And if you do, then this is a tribunal. This is a legal judicial magistrate. This is investigation of deeds and payments. This This is how it's read. Or do you view it through design law? And in the case of the three angels, what judgment has come? Could it be the one Paul references in Romans 3 verse 4? Here's Romans 3 verse 4 in the Good News Translation. God, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. Or in the New English Translation, so that you will be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is about God. Or that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged, the New King James Version. So the hour of his judgment has come. Is it the hour of him sitting in a judicial magistrate and making judgment? Or is it the hour in human history that comes that people finally make a right judgment about God? The war started in heaven over a question of who had more power. Lucifer said he actually had more power than God. Challenged him to a heavenly arm wrestling contest. Is that what happened? No, it was never a question of who was... Lucifer never alleges he has more power than God, ever. That question is so easy to settle. The question was, can you trust God with the power? He abuses power. He takes freedoms. He coerces. He forces. This is the question. The war started over a question of God's trustworthiness, spread to earth. Did God really say? Oh, he's trying to keep you down, trying to keep you from advancing. He's not not of your interest at heart. He's manipulating. Satan assaults the character of God. Thus, Revelation prophesies that a time in human history comes when enough truth has been recovered that people can finally make the right judgment about God. Now, the rest of the lesson is going to be on Daniel 8.14 and the antitypical day of atonement. So we're going to talk about this fulfillment of Daniel 8.14. As you know, Baptist preacher, back in the late... 19th, early, uh, early part of the 19th century, um, began preaching the fulfillment of Daniel 8.14, 2,300 days, years, and the sanctuary be cleansed. And he calculated the dates uh, from the decree to, to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until these events occur will be 2,300 years, and, and the decree is 457 BC, and 69 weeks are cut off for the Jewish people, and the, or 70 weeks are, and at the, the end of the 69th, in the middle of that 70th week, the oblations and sacrifices cease, that's in the blue for the Jewish people, and then at the end of the 70th week, Stephen's stoned. We all know this familiar stuff, timeline, all the way tracking out to 1844, and William Miller 
interpreted the cleansing of the sanctuary to be the second coming of Christ and the cleansing of the earth. This led to the great awakening, which really is the trumpet message. Prepare, Jesus is coming. Wake out of your sleep world. Prepare for the second coming of Christ. This was the great awakening to prepare to meet Jesus that, that, that took much of the world. But in fact, it resulted in the great disappointment. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was formed in 1863, sometime after these events, is the only church that still teaches the cleansing of the sanctuary message. And this is the antitypical or fulfillment of the Old Testament sanctuary um, teaching according to most key points in the Adventist church today. The 2300 days ended in 1844. The sanctuary is not the earth, but it is a building in heaven. Christ entered the most holy place of this building in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. He began cleansing the sanctuary of the sins of the people that had been recorded there. He began investigating the various recorded sins that had been confessed of all the people who claimed Jesus as their Savior to see if they had been properly met the proper requirements. And, uh, and then all cases of the professed followers are reviewed. God's judgment is being vindicated uh, for those he judges to be saved and lost. Uh, the end of this time period of Christ's intercessory mission and the ministry in the sanctuary ends human probation. And it culminates in the second coming of Christ. This entire teaching of the Adventist system at this point in time is taught as a legal process. It, it, investigation of records, legal accounting, judicial findings, rendering legal judgments, removal of the record of sins from books in heaven. It's a key. It's a key. This legal view is all predicated on one single idea. And if this idea is false, then this entire interpretation is flawed and false. And the one single idea that predicates this entire line of thinking is that God's law functions no different than laws sinful human beings make. It's a system of made-up rules that requires judicial oversight and legal accounting, and enforcement of proper penalties. That belief results in the entire interpretation of the cleansing of the sanctuary message. But, it's, but that belief about how the lie functions, uh, the law functions, that belief about the law is the lie from which the sanctuary needs cleansing. And so rather than cleansing the sanctuary, the entire time the church is teaching this, they're actually contributing to more infection and contamination of the sanctuary. I'm going to walk you through the evidence of this and every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. How do you see God's law? Do you see God and his law as designer or dictator? Creator of reality or rule maker? Designer, he builds reality. Space, time, energy, matter, life, and his laws are the laws upon which they function. The physical laws, but also the spiritual and moral laws. Some people will say, I will tell you, those who hold to the penal view, this false legal view of the atonement, they have said to me many times, yes, God's Physical laws, like the laws of health and the law of gravity and the laws of... Those are design laws. But the commandments, the moral laws, those are imposed laws. That's what they say. Think that through with me. Is not one of the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery? Yes or no? Yes. So the only problem with committing adultery is I get in legal trouble with God. The person who commits adultery does not actually feel guilt. There is no shame. They don't have anxiety. They don't begin to lie, and, and they, don't, they don't develop the character of a cheat. They don't corrode their, their character. They don't sear their conscience. They don't harden their heart. There's no con- um, Their spouse never finds out. They cheat for 20 years. Their spouse never knows. There is no actual harm to the sinner in doing that, is there? It's just a legal thing happening in books in heaven. Oh, my gosh. 
Or is it actually corrosive and destructive to the soul who sins? Amen. That's a design law, folks. And all of God's law function this way. Dr. Tim, you don't believe there's any records in heaven? I didn't, I didn't say that. So the records in heaven, what are the purpose of the records in heaven? How do you understand them? They're absolutely. What does the Bible say is recorded in the records of heaven? Names. The names are recorded. And in the Bible, names are symbolic of character character or individuality. So what's actually recorded there are the individuality characters of the people. I've got a a couple of really great quotes as as we finish this up. It's a great question. Yes, something's recorded there. So the best way to conceive of the heavenly records would be think of them as medical records. If you have medical records that are perfectly accurate in every detail, what determines what goes into your medical record? Reality. The objective reality of what's happening inside of you. Yes. So there is absolutely records in heaven, but they're not legal records. They're records of the objective realities of what's happening in the mind, heart, and soul of the sinner. Yes. And so to cleanse, if you want your medical record to say that you, let's say you're being treated for cancer because you have cancer in your body. And the medical record diagnoses all the pathology and shows all the symptoms that you've been struggling in the record. And if you want the record to be cleansed and say you're cancer-free, how do you get there? Do you go to a doctor who's willing to tear all the records out of the paper, paper out of the chart, and stick in blank sheets of paper and say, hey, no record of disease in this record. (laughs) That's the Adventist typical investigative judgment record. That Jesus is in heaven going through the record books and he's cleaning out the record of sin and putting in white sheets of paper and claiming we've cleansed the record. No, the only way you cleanse the record is by cleansing the hearts and minds of the, of the people. Amen. That's the avenue to cleanse the heavenly records. Let's walk through this some more. The entire law summed up, in, so we're looking at the law now. The entire law summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Or Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. All law, hang, all law prophets, they hang on these. This is operational. This is functional. It's not simply a rule. It's not simply compassion or empathy. We've talked about this before. Romans 1.20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, right? So God, his eternal law is the law of love, built reality to run upon it. And you've heard this before, but every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants and the plants give oxygen back to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which the creator built life to operate. That's a design law you're still free to transgress it. You could take a tie a plastic bag over your head, transgressing the law, selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. But the wages of that is, that's what scripture's teaching. Whenever we transgress God's law, we actually break the very protocols that he built life to operate upon and ruin us and result in death, unless someone intervenes to put us back in harmony with the law. And so somebody's got a plastic bag over their head. We see them. They're unconscious, but they're not dead. We remove the bag and put them in harmony with the law. And what do they do? They revive. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It brings life to the soul because it's how life was made. So Christianity, this is how they function. Jesus taught. Um, He gave his life and surrendered himself in order to save and heal. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. And on and on, you know the text that described the law of love being worked out over and over again. Bless those who curse. Bless, do not, do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Over and over, it, it, it teaches this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever seeks to save his life, though, will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will 
find it or save it. Notice this is the law of love in action, built into creation itself, that Paul says in Romans 1.20, because it's built into creation, men are without excuse. It's there to be seen on how life functions. The early church practiced these principles. They lived communally. They shared with others. They did not seek to retaliate against those who were persecuting them and, 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 and putting them uh, in the arenas as martyrs. They did not. They blessed and, and, uh, and prayed for those who were persecuting them. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. And the gospel... Res- was extinguished or it spread? spread? It spread. And then something changed in Christianity. Something changed when Constantine converted how they understood God's law and therefore God. And Daniel prophesied that this was going to happen. In Daniel 7.25, he said that a little horn power, that's Rome, that's Constantine, that's that power, is going to seek to change God's law. And notice how I've said this. How did the idea of God, and I said the idea, can a human power actually change God's law? No. But can they change how we think of God's law? Yes. So it was the idea, not the actual law did not get changed. But the idea of God's law did get changed. And it got changed when Rome Christianized, and the idea that Roman law is how heavenly law functions. Imperial law, made-up rule, authoritarian coercion, force, legal accounting. This is the first church historian, Eusebius, and he wrote with the Roman... This is a Christian historian now. With the Roman Empire monarchy had come on earth the image of the monarchy in heaven. In other words, the, 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 by this time, if you see the time there, the Christians began believing that God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. Impose law, system of rules, authoritarian oversight, canon law, punishment for rule breakers. Evidence of this change? What church committee has ever gotten together and voted that in their church members, they don't have to breathe or observe the law of gravity? We're going to suspend those for our members. So bad, bad, as I've said, bad pollution days or bad forest fire days in California, Adventist churches voted their members are not required to breathe on those days. <laughs> You see how silly that would be. You all laugh at that. That's silly, right? And you say, silly because that vote in a committee, could a committee actually sit and take a vote and, and vote? Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Would it have any bearing on reality? No. That's why they don't do it, right? So what would it mean if a church did vote to change God's law? Wouldn't it mean that they don't see it as design law? They see it simply as rules that can be changed. Okay, and that's what happened. The Roman church voted to change God's law. They deleted the second commandment on the making of images. They changed the Sabbath from the first day, from the seventh day to the first day. Understand, these changes are not the real change. They're evidences of the real change. The real change is they don't think of God's law as design law. They think it simply as rules a subject to change. And therefore, they're allowed to change it. They're, they're the church on earth. They've been given the keys. They're allowed to make adjustments and change in the law because that's how the law works. And Adventists have been fighting over which law was changed rather than recognizing that the real change was the idea of God's law completely changed. And and many Adventists still accept the Roman lie that God's law works like imposed law, a system of of rules enforced by the rule giver. King James Version of Daniel 7, 21 and 22, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. What kind of war is this? This little horn power is making war against the saints. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power. And notice what, what, what we demolish with the divine weapons we have. Arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against knowledge. the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. The central issue in the war, which began in heaven, which still rages on earth, is the question of the knowledge of God. That's the question in the war. And the little horn is making war and he's winning until judgment is given to the saints. Notice what Paul says, describes the same thing. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs. The man of lawlessness, that's also sometimes called the man of sin, but the man of lawlessness. What does it mean to be lawless? It means to be outside the law, without the law, to deny the law, to reject the law. Mm. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is the, not a person who's not legal. It's a person who rejects God's design law. He's got a, another system that is contrary to God's actual laws. So the man of lawlessness is real, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Notice what he does. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What's the message of Daniel 8.14? Something is going to be cleansed? The temple. Paul's telling us here that this man of sin, this, this little horn power that's waging war against the saints, sets himself up in God's temple. This, Paul writes this around eighty sixty five. Jesus has already died. He's already risen. He's already ascended into heaven. He's in his heavenly position. Do you think that he's saying that whoever this man of sin is rides up into heaven, knocks Jesus off his throne, and resides in the temple up in heaven? Is that what he's saying? No. This is not the temple in heaven that where Jesus is located physically. This is another temple he sets himself up in called God's temple. What temple? The spirit temple. How did he do it? By changing how we see God's law. The great controversy will end over what it began, a question over God's law. How we view God's law determines how we see God and which God we worship. If God is, present, is God presented as a dictator, a cosmic executioner, the actual source of pain and death, which is what most of Christianity teaches, or, and, and that's, how, that's what happened, and, and, and the world went into an age of darkness, the dark ages. So if the spirit temple is what's defiled, then what temple needs cleansing? The hour, the, Daniel 8, 14, 2300 years, the, until the temple, the sanctuary would be cleansed. How did God respond to the infection of the spirit temple with imperial law? He prophesied that a time would come when the temple would be cleansed. Daniel 8, 14. It's going to be looking in the future. It's going to be 2,300 years from now before the temple is going to be cleansed from all the lies that are going to be told. This is Great Controversy 426. For an Adventist, you should really pay attention to this. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view by Daniel 8, 14. Do we, have we locked in? This is the 2300-day message here. Mm-hmm. We all agree we've locked in on that. This is 2300-day message ending in 1844 that this author is talking about if you're an Adventist. Yes or no? Yes. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented in Daniel 7.13 and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi 3.1-3 are descriptions of the same event. Let's look at Malachi because we're talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What's refiner's fire and launderer's soap do? They cleanse. He's coming to cleanse. What's he cleanse? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will make, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Who are the Levites? 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. What's that called? A temple. To be a holy priesthood that has been contaminated with lies about God and needs cleansing. The Levites are the priesthood of believers. These are what Christ cleanses when he comes to his temple in the post-1844 period. So, what is the building material of, according to inspired sources of the sanctuary, what we call the heavenly sanctuary? The, what's it constructed out of? People. This is Ephesians two nineteen to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Is this sanctuary that I just read built by human hands? No. No, this is a sanctuary not built by human hands that we all talk about. The sanctuary that we sometimes refer to as in the heavens, not built by human hands. Zechariah says that, uh, tell, tell him that this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. That's referring to Jesus, capital B. He will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. And he, will, and he who will build the temple of the Lord, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne. There'll be harmony between the two. Jesus left heaven in order to, what we've already described in class today, eradicate the infection of sin and rebuild the human temple in holiness and glory to be the dwelling place for God. And then Revelation 3.12. Notice what it says about the righteous. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. What? We're going to be locked in a building for all eternity? (laughs) All eternity stuck in a building? No, because the temple is built out of living beings. No matter where you go and what cosmic galaxy in God's universe, you will always be a a pillar in his temple. Or David said it this way, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You're not stuck in in a building made out of plaster and stone or marble and gold. You are a building block no matter where you are and will always be part of this temple. So is there, people say, well, do you believe in a real temple in heaven, a real physical temple in heaven? Are people real physical beings? Yes. This is real and physical. It's not, it's not. But it is so much better than when humans get. It's made out of living beings. How does Christ cleanse the Levites? Notice Daniel 7. I beheld the same little horde made war prevailed against them. He's winning. He's winning the war until something happens. The ancient of days come and judgment was given, imparted to the saints. What law lends, if you have imposed law lends, which what our authors have been bringing up in the quarterly this quarter, it means a judicial, until God makes a ruling in judicial favor in heaven in a courtroom. That's not what the text is meaning. What it means, the actual Hebrew actually means to impart or to give or to endow with. And so design law We're being confused by all the lies of the dark ages, and we are making the wrong decision until truth comes and discernment, wisdom, insight, awareness, and we now can make a right judgment. Judgment is given to us. We can say, oh no, God isn't like this. He's like this. Praise God. We make a new judgment, for the hour of his judgment has come. Satan is the father of lies, and he has lied about God by misinterpreting God's law to be like human law, imposed rules. Christianity accepted the lie and now worships the God who functions like a sinful dictator, the source of inflicted punishment. The temple, the spirit temple must be cleansed. So again, 
God, may you win when, when you prevail, when you are judged. And why would God need to be judged? Because he's the one who's been lied about. And thus, the revelation message, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The imposed law says, be afraid. You better obey the right rules. Have your TV off by sunset. Because God's holding a tribunal. He's determining guilt and punishment. The design law, be in awe, revere God and give him glory, glorify him. For the time in human history has come for people to make the right judgment about God. Stop worshiping this dictator and worship the designer, he who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So overview, we're gonna, almost going to close here. God prophesied a power would infect the spirit temple, lies about him. Be 2,300 years before enough truth could be recovered to cleanse the minds of people and restore trust. Restored trust results in opening the heart, and the spirit comes and cleanses us from sin, and the record books reveal that cleansing process. This is at one meant, restoring people to oneness with God when he comes. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So historic view of the heavenly sanctuary from one of those who came out of the great disappointment and wrote the desire of ages and great controversy. This is what she wrote about this whole thing. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at the quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were fitted in the far were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house, all prepared for use. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of this world and is fitting this people who profess to be children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed. We must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character. We must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God. For we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. We should be lively stones, not dead ones but live ones that reflect the image of Christ. I'm going to pause, give an opportunity for questions, and have prayer. Do you see the profound difference when you see God as creator and his laws or the design laws and that sin has broken his protocols upon which life is, is designed to operate and that Christ came and took this terminal condition upon himself in order to eradicate it and restore his living law in us and the entire plan of salvation is to win us to trust so that we will open the heart and let him do that work in us as well and then we become living stones cleansed from all of this corruption that has come because of sin. Yes. I love the, the phrase, come and reason, and I think God gave you the words for this ministry. When I think of the Bible and how it talks about sin, and God forgets it, when we ask forgiveness, it's gone. And, and then yet, when people misinterpret the judgment, and they said there are records of sin in heaven, it never made sense. It was a dichotomy. It was like, wait a minute, that's not the God. Why would the Bible say one thing, but you're saying another thing? So thank you for bringing those 
two together with a Bible, God's holy word agrees with what you've said today. Thank you. Welcome. My heart. Any other questions or comments? We'll close with prayer. Oh, let's close. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are God of love and that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely united in your work to save us from sin and cleanse your entire universe from sin. We ask that your spirit will come now, open our minds, help us see the truth, and then as we open our hearts that we may partake of the divine nature that you promised, the victory and achievements of Christ may be reproduced in us that we can be witnesses for you at this time in history and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.